This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Good morning. This is Justin David sitting in for Bill Newman this morning. Really so happy to be here with you, Monty. And typically in my role in uh, on the Reverend and the Rabbi, I come with a guest and Bill, and there are a number of interlocutors, and we talk about issues that are uh, that have some connection to faith communities here in the Valley, but I think uh, we try to talk about issues that are important to everybody. And so here I'm, fl- I'm flying solo uh, in the studio here with Monty, and um, for about uh, 20 minutes or so, Monty and I will talk about certain issues that have uh, arisen both uh, in the national consciousness, but also some things that have been happening locally. And then uh, probably about uh, in half an hour, I'll be joined by uh, a colleague of mine, and we'll talk about what's happening in the season as we approach Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the beginning of the Jewish New Year. Uh, but first, uh, Monty, I wanted to talk about a couple of issues of national interest. Uh, people have certainly been reading about um, the practice of governors in uh, Texas and in Florida of sending migrants to um, to uh, Washington and New York. And uh, this morning we read about the governor of Florida sending uh, my, sending a plane load of 50 migrants uh, totally unannounced to Martha's Vineyard. So first of all, before we dive into that and perhaps why that might be not only an issue of uh, local concern, but an issue of uh, particularly Jewish concern um, from my perspective, um, have you uh, been reading about this or have you been uh, learning more about this? Yes. Yeah. Um, the thing that I think is fascinating about it is that when this publicity stunt that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis tried to enact on the people of Massachusetts and Martha's Vineyard in particular, sending two planes unannounced with these immigrants, uh, when they landed, if you read the New York Times story, they were met with kindness. They were met yeah. with uh, one in a person they interviewed was given new shoes and said that he hadn't uh, had new pants in months and hadn't had new shoes in months and months and hadn't had the ability to be, to feel welcomed and feel cared for. Our Republican governor, as you know, critical as people can be of him at times, immediately snapped into action and found uh, temporary shelters for them and is trying to figure out um, how to humanely treat these human beings that have been inhumanely treated by the governor of Florida, who is in all likelihood a 2024 presidential candidate who will very likely go against the former president, Donald Trump, and is trying to out-Trump Trump with these sort of publicity stunts in advance, I think. So the fact that they were met with such kindness by the people of Martha's Vineyard is uh, really heartwarming to me. So I wonder if things like this ultimately will backfire uh, or if there is enough of that virulent uh, hard right base that just hates the other so much that they get a kick out of seeing things like this happen. Yeah. There was a, a quote I read from, I don't know if it was the state senator who represents that district, who said something along the lines of, this is a really cynical ruse, and the people come here and we treat them like human beings. Yeah. That's the way to do it. It's the biblical way to do it, for sure. <laughs> well, for sure. And when I was in, um, you know, one of the last trips I took before the pandemic was with this uh, rabbinic human rights organization that I'm a part of, Trua. Which you won a, a major award from. Yeah, well... That's not the story this morning. It's not the topic, but um, but uh, there was a group of about nineteen of us, nineteen of us rabbis who went to El Paso and toured the border and went to detention facilities to see um, to get a handle, kind of a on the ground handle of what was going on at the time. And the aide to the Congress uh, to the uh, congressional representative 
um, put it in stark terms. She said, we're criminalizing what's essentially a humanitarian problem. Uh, and so here's this really cynical ploy of the governor saying, okay, you think this is a, a humanitarian problem, you deal with it. And you know we're not gonna treat these people as human beings, we're gonna treat them as a problem to shovel off onto you. It's a humanitarian problem of the United States' own design in large part as well. When you hear about the countries that many of these people are coming from, it's because of the shenanigans that our CIA and other organizations have enacted over the course of decades in creating unstable governments in these places that then they, they want to find a better life for their themselves and their families. Yeah. The, the one that I had is, while, while this is indeed cynical, might there be a solution where, you know, in the best of all possible worlds, there are kind of cooperative agreements where, we, where different states say, yes, if migrants come across the border, we can take a certain amount and appropriately support them and integrate them into communities around the country. I mean, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be a, um, a rational, humane situ you know, solution to this? You would think, but I, I mean, most people, I think, ultimately don't want to leave where they're from. They feel like they must leave where they're from. If we, as a nation and a world, were to invest in the infrastructure of these nations as opposed to trying to destabilize them or commit many little coups if we don't like who's in charge at the time, maybe more people wouldn't need to come to the United States. They'd stay at the place where they were born, where they feel more comfortable, and maybe that's a solution as well. Yeah. You're much more savvy about politics than I am. Am I? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> um, but so I'm wondering, I mean, can, the, can this sort of cynicism on the part of these governors who are essentially you know, shipping people north, um, can this be used against the governors in an election to really, um, and without much amplification, to shine a light on how deeply in, inhumane and immoral these kinds of gestures are? I'm not sure. I would love to think that. But, you know, the rhetoric that came during the Trump campaign before he was uh, even really the serious candidate for the GOP, the kind of things that he were saying would have ended any other politician's career at that time. But there was enough there there that some aspect of the American public latched onto that rhetoric and has run with it. Uh, you know, and I think that we're might we may be far from over when it comes to. Uh, the people that appreciate that kind of gesture, appreciate the fact that the uh, the governor of Florida has flown immigrants out of there. To, I'll show those blue liberals in Martha's Vineyard and former President Obama and Secretary of State Kerry, who both live there. I'll show them what it's like. I think there's enough people that think that uh, that's a hoot, that it may uh, galvanize that aspect of the base. It's interesting on the other end of things where you've got like a Senator Lindsey Graham saying, oh, I'm going to end, I'm going to put forward an abortion ban after 15 weeks across the country. Um, that seems to be backfiring. That kind of rhetoric, the idea of overturning Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court, that seems to be backfiring. Why it hasn't backfired when people are so cruel to immigrants, uh, that I don't understand. I'd like, I'd like it to backfire, but it doesn't seem to have yet. The script that seems to unfold is the following. Um, you know, right-wing politicians will propose these policies or do these egregious things. There will be a public uh, reaction to that, and some more progressive lawmakers uh, may go on may go on the attack. Then those attacks get uh, fed fed back through the machine. They come out as kind of see what they're doing to me, 
and becomes and they become fuel for a kind of macho man rhetoric, right? They're calling me, you know, they're saying I'm against women, they're saying I'm against immigrants, you know, and then and um, uh, and then it becomes, you know, fuel for, you know, I I can't really articulate what comes out on the other side, but but that the gamble uh, or the or the script has been then that translates into electoral success. Um, I'm wondering, and this is less a political question than a human question. It's worked politically in the past. Trump could say these outrageous things. Um, when he was called on it, he could say, "Oh, those you know, namby pamby, snowflake, soy drinking, whatever." Uh, women, liberals, you know, all the code word, all the dog whistles, they're saying this about me, and then he riles up this base. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there's a distinction between rhetoric that riles people up politically, that translates into gains at the polls, and what people actually think and feel if you were to get them in a room and have an honest conversation with them. Or to get them in a room with the type of people that they are learning to hate. I think that's always key. Like, would you be, would you really say this kind of thing if another human being that fits the description or uh, ostensibly fits the description that you are using against them were here with you right now? Um, we lack that empathy and human kindness, especially in an era of social media where it's very easy to just go off on a tear with no... Uh, empathetic consequences, I guess, no realizing how much it might actually hurt somebody else to uh, on the other side. And uh, I think that's a big part of the problem too, actually. Yeah. You're talking about the backlash, particularly around abortion. Do you think there might be some softening in that sort of contradiction that's been there? You know, masses of people voting seemingly behind messages of hate, but they're human beings. And we kind of trust that if we were to sit down with people one-to-one, -one, they wouldn't act that way. And many you know, many of us probably have stories of, of that. But do you think there might be a crack in that in that sort of, you know... Perhaps. Nasty... But I think ultimately abortion uh, affects 50% of... Uh, rights to abortion affects about 50% of the population as individuals. Uh, and I think it's easy to hear a sad story about uh, migrants being shipped out of Florida and landed somewhere that they don't know where they are and just forget about it, as opposed to living day to day in what may be a uh, female presenting or a female body of some sort and knowing that the government is trying to crack down on your own body. I think that's where the backlash comes from. It's so personal for at least half the population and a large portion of the uh, population that does not identify <laughs> as female who can see that this is a, a dark pathway to go down when it comes to bodily autonomy when it comes to privacy and things of that nature. Yeah, so so if an issue really does hit close to home, uh, perhaps that doesn't figure in into the whole calculus that the, you know. It doesn't seem to be in the is. way that they hoped, at least in the, early, uh, in the early elections, and you know, Kansas voting to say, no, we don't want this to be part of yeah. Kansas of all places. So if that yeah. is the canary in the coal mine there, then I don't know if Lindsey Graham's new gambit is gonna be successful for uh, retaking the Senate or not, it may. They backfire. Yeah. So um, just to let folks know, um, you know, from where I come from, this as a rabbi, you know, Jewish communities around the country are um, really united in their support of of migrants, of better asylum laws, of uh, repealing uh, what's called um, um, Order uh, Forty Two. You know, the Trump era law, uh, ostensibly. Um, 
enacted because of COVID to keep my to keep people from crossing the border. The Biden administration has yet to repeal Title 42, uh, and actually that law plus other problems affecting migrants and has been uh, the focus of uh, this organization Trua that I'm a part of and I'm part of a working group that is trying to formulate some kind of you know ongoing campaign to deal with these issues. But locally. Uh, locally, there's going to be uh, an event on the Sunday between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, we'll come back to that uh, after the break and tell people more about that. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Katerina and Raul swing 30 feet above the street as the soul magnets get down. And Mr. G revs it up. The Amherst Block Party, tonight, 5 to 9. Show circus stilt walkers, jugglers, acrobats, and contortionists. Ollie the Clown makes balloon animals for kids. Nikki paints faces. The yo-yo people do tricks. Step dancing, kung fu, global eats on the street. Downtown Amherst is one big party. The Amherst Block Party, tonight, 5 to 9. Eat more kale, says the bumper sticker. Why assume I'm not eating enough kale? If you eat at Paul and Elizabeth's, there's always kale. There's the Caesar salad with kale, with romaine, or both. There's the vegetarian platter, vegetables sautéed to perfection, including kale. Or just order a side of sautéed greens. Some people treat kale like one of those good-for-you-but-no-one-really-likes-it things. Maybe those people have never been to Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Inside Thorns in Northampton. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you, until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. It happens all over Massachusetts in every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. Hi guys. We'll see you practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. So we're back here. 
uh, Justin David with Monty Belmonte. And just to finish off the thought to uh, that we were on the issue that we were talking about, about the unjust treatment of, um, of migrants, of people who are undocumented, of immigrants, uh, on Sunday, uh, October 2nd, a local uh, independently organized Jewish immigration justice group is uh, organizing a... Um, uh, a ritual and an event to highlight um, the challenges facing uh, immigrants in this country and how we can support them as a community, not just as a Jewish community, but as a uh, whole community. And that will be on Sunday, October 2nd at 2 o'clock down, um, I believe, um, in the parking lot uh, in the entrance to the bridge. But uh, when uh, my friend Rabbi Ricky comes on, we'll talk more about that. Uh, I wanted to switch to uh, another issue of national interest that might be of interest to our uh, listeners here, which um, which has to do with the investigation into Hasidic schools, K through 12 schools, privately run, uh, called Yeshivot, uh, that receive public funding for special needs programs and for other carve-outs in New York State. And after a years-long investigation, they found that the uh, achievement rates and the testing measured by testing were just abysmal. Uh, now, just to qualify what this means, uh, there are many, many Jewish groups and many, many Jewish schools that run, that provide a K-12 education. Um, there are many of those schools that are, you know, quite excellent and, and um, you're on a par with any, you know, any high-performing school, whatever that means, however, however we understand that. But these are... Um, schools of a particular nature. They're primarily in uh, Brooklyn. They are primarily only Yiddish speaking, and they real and their interest really is not so much in training uh, is training people to get out and join the general workforce. They're interested in creating uh, Jews who are loyal not only to Judaism but their particular uh, their particular mode of ultra orthodox Judaism. Uh, that comes from Europe, that's Yiddish-speaking, that's very much bound uh, within their own community. But I'm wondering, Monty, if you uh, saw this piece and have thought about it and have... I did. It was a big piece in the Sunday Times. It was. There was some shocking information in there where I think they gave them a standardized math test and uh, none of them were able to pass it. That being said, I mean, education can be all sorts of different things. And I've been very critical, as have many guests on this show, of standardized testing for any number of reasons. So what is the end-term goal of uh, the yeshiva, the yeshivot that are in Brooklyn, and and what are they training their students for? If they have uh, a different design on what they believe education should be, I think that's okay. I don't know if they should be subsidized by the United States or by the state of New York uh, to that end. And there were some really disturbing tales about people who had decided no longer to live that ultra-Orthodox life and how they were not well prepared to enter uh, U.S. society after the fact. But, you know, it is a freedom of religion thing in many ways. I spent a good deal of time in Jerusalem and the ultra-Orthodox Jews who live there are a part of their own. They're funded by the society of the of the state of Israel, but they're they're there to study the Torah. They're there to study and 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 uh, ascribe to these higher, uh, in their mind, higher uh, aspirations than commerce and commercialism and mathematics and English and things like that. And maybe in some ways you could look at it as like if I were a 
Shaolin monk living in China, you would say, oh, what, you know, what a wonderful and benevolent lifestyle they live. Do they know math? I don't know. They know Kung Fu, <laughs> but that's what they're, they're going for. Um, so yeah, I can, I can see different sides of this, but when it comes down to the funding of these schools, I think it, it can't be from the state of New York, which I think has an obligation to all of its citizens to, that want to have an education, to get the type of education that we have all as a society sort of settled upon the, the three R's, as yeah, it were. Yeah. Well, it's a very, it's a very interesting constellation of, of interests and, and um, expectations here. On the one hand, you know, I, I do appreciate um, what, what some of the, what some spokespeople in the community are saying, that we have these schools so that we can promote our way of life and raise people, uh, raise families who choose to send their children there. Um, to that way of life. And so, for example, um, I really don't know about the education of the Amish. Right. Right. But we, you know, whatever we think individually about the lifestyle of the Amish, it's it's kind of a um, a cultural value for many of us that the Amish have their communities, they live as they want to live, they interact as they want to interact with us. There may be you know, problems in the community like any other community, but nevertheless, um, we we don't demand that the Amish not be Amish, right? And and I I sympathize with that point of view with regard to the ultra orthodox you know Satmar Hasidim in New York. However, in as much as they accept um, and pursue public funding for special needs programs and for other carve outs that you know, are particular to New York City, New York State, they make themselves accountable to the general public. And so what does the general public demand of them? And that gets really fuzzy. And what does it mean to be a uh, essentially a religious sect that lives in, in both worlds, right? Accountable to themselves, which is something that we can all respect, even if we don't agree or don't approve of, you know, the way they organize, and at the same time, accountable to the general public. What does that mean? And it was notable to me in the New York Times article that they stressed two things. One is um, uh, ongoing poverty uh, in the community, and poverty that was linked to the inability of people to make a living outside the community, or if they're outside community in a very, new, you know, uh, limited area of, of uh, fields. Um, there is an interesting local tie-in, which is that over the years, um, there have been people who, uh, who grew up in those backgrounds who left and then pursued some kind of higher education, then came back to the Valley, came to the Valley because of the programs that exist at Mount Holyoke and Smith for returning students like the Ada Comstock Scholars Program. So I think I think more, I'd like to see more sort of first person uh, accounts of what it was like to leave the community uh, with the education that they had, how they, how people have negotiated life afterwards, uh, their organizations to help people do that. Um, I also wonder to what extent, despite shows like uh, Unorthodox or um, the documentary One of Us, in which there's a real stark before and after and a real struggle to leave. If in fact there may be people who kind of go back and forth, right? Um, 
there's someone I, I met actually who's a scholar, who's a sociologist and who, who himself grew up in the Lubavitch, among Lubavitch Chassidim, then went, got a PhD in sociology. And he has documented that in such sort of insular religious communities, uh, most people who, who step out, they um, don't step totally out and they're not totally rejected. And there's a kind of back and forth. So I'd like to hear more about the fuzzy in between. As at the same time, I'd like to hear more about how the kind of education people receive in yeshivot may uh, inhibit them, might impair them uh, when it comes to seeking employment and building up their lives outside. So I don't know the answers to those questions, but they're yeah, they're they are interesting there. questions. And yeah. there was an analog. Um, I grew up Catholic and then had a radical born again Christian experience right about the time you're starting to pick your colleges to go to, and I went to a Christian liberal arts school on the North Shore of Boston. And that school, like so many other schools, has some federal grants and contracts that it works with. However, this school, uh, in light of all of the, the Massachusetts Constitution and what the U.S. United States was doing, um, they were asking their teachers particularly to sign a statement of faith that would say that they wouldn't identify as homosexual or engage in homosexual activity. And the president of Greenfield Community College, uh, long after I had uh, left there, and have changed many of my opinions on things, uh, was asking the, the federal government to pull their funding because they weren't living up to the what society was expecting of them, despite the fact that they had the religious freedom to do what they want at that school. They shouldn't be funded by the federal government or the state government if they're not uh, signed up for the, the, the ideologies that we as a, a state and a, and a nation have agreed upon. Yeah. So um, that ties into another very interesting story, and perhaps we'll come back to that after the break. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Now the latest from WHMP, I'm Monty Belmonte, in for Jess Tyler. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis yesterday flew two planes of immigrants to Martha's Vineyard, escalating a tactic by Republican governors to draw attention to what they consider to be the Biden administration's failed border policies. Flights to the upscale island enclave in Massachusetts were part of an effort to, quote, transport illegal immigrants to sanctuary destinations. While DeSantis's office didn't elaborate on their legal status, many migrants who crossed the border from Mexico are temporarily shielded from deportation after being freed by U.S. authorities to pursue asylum in immigration court. As allowed under U.S. law and international treaty, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker, a Republican, said he was in touch with local officials and that short-term shelter was being provided. Law enforcement officials say authorities are examining whether the employee who reported an explosion at Northeastern University may have lied to investigators and staged the incident. One official said investigators identified inconsistencies in the employee's statement and became skeptical because his injuries didn't match wounds typically consistent with an explosion. The officials could not discuss details of the investigation publicly and spoke to the Associated Press on condition of anonymity. In an interview with the Boston Globe, the employee denied staging the explosion, calling the event very traumatic. The Northeastern explosion came on the same day there was a bomb scare and subsequent lockdown at Northampton High School. No bombs were found at NHS, and the threat there is believed to have come from a student text in a group chat. 
Sunny, breezy, a high of 68 to 72 this afternoon. Scattered clouds tonight. Evening temperatures in the 60s. Overnight lows of 40 to 46. Mostly sunny tomorrow. A high of 70 to 74. Low 70s and a sun cloud mix for Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Un juez federal reveló el martes porciones adicionales de una declaración jurada del FBI que establece la base para un registro de la casa del expresidente Donald Trump en Florida, lo que demuestra que los agentes obtuvieron un disco duro antes, después de emitir una citación para las imágenes de vigilancia grabadas dentro de Mar-a-Lago. El mes pasado se hizo pública una versión muy redactada de la declaración jurada, pero el Departamento de Justicia solicitó permiso para mostrar más después de que los abogados de Trump revelaran la existencia de una citación del gran jurado de junio que buscaba imágenes de video de cámaras en las cercanías del espacio de almacenamiento de Mar-a-Lago. El Departamento de Justicia ha dicho en una presentación separada que ha desarrollado evidencia de que los registros del gobierno probablemente fueron ocultados y retirados de la sala de almacenamiento y que probablemente se tomaron medidas para obstruir la investigación del gobierno. En otras informaciones, como parte de los esfuerzos de resonificación de las escuelas públicas de Holyoke, más de la mitad de todos los estudiantes en los grados prekinder a octavo asistirán a una nueva escuela el próximo año cuando el distrito complete su transición a escuelas primarias y secundarias separadas y vuelva a dibujar los límites escolares para el otoño de 2023. Por tal motivo, habrán dos conversaciones familiares y comunitarias en persona. La primera sesión se llevará a cabo este miércoles 14 de septiembre a las 5 de la tarde en la Escuela Kelly. Se ofrecerá transporte gratuito disponible desde las escuelas Lawrence y Morgan. También se ofrecerán actividades supervisadas para niños de 3 a 14 años y también se proporcionará comida. Para más información y registro puede visitar hps.ma.us. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. This is Justin David. We're back, and in a few moments, we'll welcome my dear friend and colleague, Rabbi Ricky Kosofsky of, of Beit HaVa. But um, to finish up the um, issue we were just talking about, uh, Monty, you were talking about your school where, where um, faculty and, and administrators at this Christian school that was receiving some federal dollars had to sign loyalty oaths that they wouldn't engage in what they called homosexual activity. And um, that actually ties into another uh, front page news item um, that uh, people might be interested in, which is that Yeshiva University, which is a modern, modern Orthodox university that has many graduate programs and um, as well as an undergraduate program that serves you know, all kinds of folks, not just people who are modern Orthodox. Um, for about 15 years, um, they've been in litigation with um, a group of students and their representatives who represent what would otherwise be an LGBTQ student union on campus. And they've so far refused to provide them infrastructure and support and things like that, even though the president has said, we, well, we want people who are LGBTQ to be here and seen at Yeshiva University. Nevertheless, they've resisted uh, efforts and litigation um, and, and have and actually uh, appealed a um, New York Supreme Court decision to do just that. And so 
Uh, earlier this week, Sonia Sotomayor said, um, you know, until the Supreme Court has anything to say about this, meaning the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, you can continue uh, doing as you've done. But then yesterday, in a five to four vote, uh, the Supreme Court said, um, you know, you ha you haven't exhausted um, all of your appeals uh, to New York State. So you actually now have to abide by New York State's ruling and support this student group. And um, Ricky, uh, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm wondering if you have thoughts about this, if, if this is an issue you've been tracking, or perhaps if there are people you know who might be involved. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I've been uh, watching and reading, and um, I guess what I can say is I've had a lot of strong feelings that a, a, such a prominent part of the Jewish community issue at university has, is fighting so hard to keep an LGBTQ support group and group from existing uh, within its institution. And um, uh, I, I'm, I just, I'm kind of floored, I'm embarrassed, I am just shocked, I'm angry, um, just that this has been going on for so many years. And uh, I, I just, it's, it, it baffles me why, uh, why they would go to such lengths, but, um, uh, I, but, and, and I don't want to put, I don't think it's just Yeshiva University that struggles this mm -hmm. with this, the reform movement went through its own process. It just was several decades ago and the conservative movement went through its process, mm -hmm. you know, also a number of decades ago. Um, but, uh, just to see this going on right now at a time of, you know, the Christian right, you know, fighting abortion and everything else is just shocking to me. Yeah, yeah, and as that's where that's that's sort of where I'm lying. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, you know, um, Ricky. You know, we both know people in this community who have national profiles in helping and working with organ, particularly uh, Orthodox um, institutions, to uh, change their policies uh, toward L towards uh, students and families who are LGBTQ. So perhaps this might be an opening. Let's hope for some kind of ongoing change and healing. Um, so, um, but what I want to do, uh, Ricky, is um, pivot to um, a couple of things. Um, one is, you know, we haven't had a chance to talk publicly about um, uh, about the partnership between uh, Beit Hava and uh, Bombix. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So Beta Hava uh, has been... Um, our, our, our sacred space has been with the Florence Congregational Church for 25 years since pretty much the be close to the beginning of when Beta Hava was founded as the um, Reform Synagogue in Greater Northampton. And uh, in recent years, the Florence Church faced a lot of financial challenges and was really looking for another partner or steward of the building, which has such historic roots, the, the synagogue has been, I mean, the synagogue, the synagogue is 25, but the church is over 150 years old and uh, was built during um, the Civil War and it was part of the abolitionist movement. And there were multiple religious groups that uh, used to use the church in those times. Um, and they were really an anti-slavery uh, basis for this area and very connected with the silk industry and, um, uh, and a lot of uh, abolitionist work. And so uh, it's it's been an amazing miracle th 
through a number of iterations that what emerged is this new organization called Bombix Center for Arts and Equity. The executive director is Cassandra Holden, and um, she's just a phenomenal visionary and leader and has pulled together such an incredible team of people who first of all, love the, the space and the building and have a vision of Florence Center being a center of arts and culture, social justice, um, and really honoring the traditions um, and also really understanding the need for um, really being more on the world map and the regional map and the state map and this, this whole area of um, bringing just phenomenal music and arts and culture, especially as it relates to arts and equity into the area. So Bombix um, uh, has been established and uh, has already begun several renovations and upgrades and visions, really just moved into the building and it's just with so much love. Um, and now hosts events, a lot of musical concerts. We have an amazing one tonight. And we, as Beta Hava, partner as much as we can with Bombix. So because we're in the building also and um, and we love what they do. And there's a lot of overlay between our partnerships and our visions. So tonight there is an Israeli band called the Yama Ensemble. They are just an incredible Middle Eastern band. And we're doing it as a pre-Rosh Hashanah concert tonight at 7 p.m. at Bombix. It's in the sanctuary. And if you haven't seen the sanctuary at Florence Congregational Church, it it always was the most beautiful place to me. It's where my son's bar mitzvah was. I think you remember Justin. Oh yeah. We somehow, <laughs> we were over capacity. There was like 350 people there, but it was quite beautiful. And it's just even more beautiful now with um, just, you know, it had some, just needed a little love and paint and they have really brought an incredible sound system in and um just really working on creating that space so the so the concert is tonight at seven and uh it's called jewish uh to awaken love jewish global music throughout the ages and uh it's just going to be a world-class event at seven o'clock um harold grinspoon foundation generously gave us a community grant that we co-partnered with bombix and um they just are bringing so much life and uh, incredible work. It's really exciting. Yeah, I mean, one one thing that strikes me, Ricky, is that for a long time, um, you've been really interested in um, bringing uh, bringing ensembles, music, textures that are kind of from a world music perspective into Jewish life and worship. And you know, we mm -hmm. we talk about uh, particularly Nava Tehila, and you can tell. Mm -hmm our listeners more about, you know, what, who Nava Tehila is, but you were into their stuff and saying, we need to, we need to make this a part of our public worship um, regularly um, before mm -hmm. anyone else was doing it. And um, so t tell us about that. Tell us about your love of the, the different kinds of sort of hybrid, um, you know, world music we're hearing in the Jewish world and, um, and just, you know, your, your love of that and, and how you see that shaping and changing community. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I definitely have strong roots connected to Israel and the very progressive Israel scene that's involved in a lot of peace work and environmental justice work and um, uh, sort of spiritual global music work. So, uh, you know, that was sort of just who I am as a person and things that I was connected to at, when I came here, which I don't understand how it's been 15 years, but I moved here 15 years ago. But um 
and uh yeah i've just always been drawn to spiritual music that embodies um jewish culture hebrew um psalms and and verses and literature um uh in a modern way there's a whole kind of sacred music scene in israel it's like by israelis and, and very much influenced by middle eastern music from which many you know many israeli jews come from that lineage um as well as klezmer and other european lineages so yeah so i i i guess i just didn't really realize that it was an an odd or interesting thing to do in the early days when I came, but we brought Gabrielle Meyer Halevi and members of the Sheva band here. Um, I can't remember who else. And Navatihila is this incredible Jewish renewal synagogue, and they were starting up too about 15 years ago or so, and hosting them. And and the truth is that these people are my very good friends. So the other part is, you know, when you have a connection that just becomes deepen because you i just feel that their um their their artistic spirituality and brilliance just is such a gift to north american jewry so i do everything i can to bring that to bring them in fact i used to do this in la when i was in rabbinical school too i was always behind the scenes helping you know helping them when they would come and try to do concerts not navajahila but some of the other groups so for me, this is so exciting. It, it is truly almost uh, dreamlike because through Bombix, I've, I'm learning about many other musical groups that I just didn't know about yet or don't know and you know hadn't heard about. And um, their musical producer, his name is Ido Moore. He's an amazing, very gifted and skilled um, bringer of of people, not just Jewish. I mean, this they they span world music that and and regional music. It's just it's really incredible the um, the people and the and the the acts and the bands that they're bringing, and especially I would say Ido and Cassandra and the Bombix folks are really committed to bringing people of color. They bring more people of color, musicians and artists, to the valley and to the region than I think anyone else. But it's understated. It's not like you know, it's not like a tagline, but it's just so rich. And I think there's that's really powerful. And they're really committed to helping bring artists, especially in this time of the pandemic when artists have been just hit and musicians and, and have, are just hit so hard. Yeah. So anything they can do to bring them. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll come back in just a moment. This is Bill Newman, when it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of, of safety management in place at every source to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. In the late 30s, they started singing together at the Alabama Institute for the Negro Blind. In the 40s and 50s, they spread their gospel across the Jim Crow era South. You gotta keep the devil down in the hole. In the 60s, they shaped the sound of the civil rights movement, singing at events with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This Friday, they'll be singing at UMass. 
the Blind Boys of Alabama this Friday, September 16th at UMass Amherst. Over 80 years of gospel. Along the way, teaming up with Stevie Wonder, Lou Reed, and Prince. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website and get ready. The Blind Boys of Alabama will raise the roof on the Frederick C. Tillis Performance Hall this Friday, September 16th at UMass Amherst. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. Watch films in Spanish, read poems in Spanish, Spanish through arts and artists, an advanced Spanish class this fall at the International Language Institute. Poetry, film, music, visual arts. Look, listen, speak, sing, read and write. Steep yourself in the Spanish language through the arts. This 12-week part-time course, in person or online, starts September 20th. So sign up, art lovers. One of the world's top language schools is right here, the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. So you're hearing music from the Yama Ensemble, who will be performing tonight at Bombix, and my friend Rabbi Ricky Kosofsky and I were just talking about all the intersections of World music, world music coming out of Israel, spiritual music, our community, people we know, our experience, and how it all comes together. And speaking of everything com coming together, Ricky, uh, tell us where you're at with the high holidays. And I'll just you know bring up a thread here. I mentioned to Monty uh, earlier the uh, event for immigrant justice on October 2nd at 2 o'clock. Um, and um, you want to tell us a little bit about that, what you know about that? Sure. Um, there's a wonderful event called Securing Safety, an Immigration Justice High Holy Day Gathering that's going to be held on Sunday, October 2nd at two o'clock in the afternoon. That is going to be down at the Connecticut River Greenway uh, State Park that's in Northampton. And it's organized by, Jew by Jewish Activists for Immigration Justice. They call themselves JAGE, which is a group of incredible uh, activists that started I'm not sure how long, but I want to say about four years ago. And um, they came into being specifically to focus uh, as Jewish activists to rally uh, for immigration justice. And they went down several times to the border and done a lot of um, great activist work as well as hands-on work with uh, immigrants on, uh, down in Florida and in Texas and um, Mexico. And um, They've organized this group, um, basically sort of broadening the idea of immigration justice to the theme of securing safety um, and knowing that many struggle with economic and health and family issues 
uh, in Western Mass, um, but that, you know, in the, in the majority, we're in a pretty safe place. Um, and we're looking uh, to um, help and support asylum seekers here and elsewhere who are fleeing life or death situations. Um, and it's going to be a Tashlich uh, inspired event. Tashlich is the ritual that uh, Jews do on Rosh Hashanah, where we cast cast away into the water. Usually it's uh, breadcrumbs, sometimes it's stones to be more environmentally conscious. Um, and um, this is for people of all faiths to come. We're going to be having speakers, um, you know, sort of intentions, actually doing a ritual at the water of people, uh, letting go what they, what's the block that's kept them from being more of an activist or more involved towards immigration justice and issues of safety, as well as a hope for the future. And that's great. That's going to be a great event. That's great. I'll be there, and I should point out this is an independent initiative. It's not, spon- it's not housed in either of our communities, but of course, it's of both of our communities and in, in all communities. So that'll be yeah, great. Yeah, and in fact, it's yeah, and it's it's pretty broadly co-sponsored uh, at this point by um, you know across the Jewish community and others. Great. Um, in the last few minutes we have, Ricky, um, tell us where are you at in your preparation for the high holidays and your process? What are you thinking about? Well, it's interesting because I keep reflecting on the last two years of how different the high holidays were and how stressful it was because we were in the in the throes of the pandemic. And I heard someone refer to the stage that we're in right now as the late pandemic. So I really, truly hope we're in late pandemic era. And um I'm I'm doing a lot of what we did last year. We're going to be outdoors for services uh, in a, under a tent, unless it rains, in which case we'll move to the sanctuary. Um, and uh, while last year masks were required outside, masks are actually optional outdoors now. So that feels much more relaxed. I'm glad about that at the moment. And um, I'm just looking forward to real. Oh, we're also we're doing hybrid services, so our services will also be on a Zoom live stream. But you know, very similar to what we usually do. And I think uh, missing a piece of the anxiety and trauma that I felt like we were still really holding last year. So I have less of a focus on what does it mean to live through a pandemic, and more of focus of who do we want to be in the world, and how are we emerging, and. Um, you know, what is this next stage of transformation and really what do we want to build with an opportunity for a new future? What, what about you? How, how, how are you feeling and doing right now? Well, I'm feeling similarly that we are at a period where we are thinking about what to build for the future. And I'm sensing among people who I come in contact with a new openness to gathering together in person community, a real excitement, a real hunger. I think there is, as uh, I agree with you, I think there's less of the sadness and fear that we saw last year that's pandemic-related, although part of living as a human being, and especially around the high holidays, I think is to open up our open ourselves up to some of that sadness mm-hmm. and fear. Yeah. Um, so in the last minute and a half that we have here, you know, are you feeling similarly that people are ready for uh, to embrace, you know, a sense of renewal and hope and, you know, what are a couple of thoughts about how you see that? Yeah, I feel like a lot of the focus last year, I mean, last year in the Jewish cycle was the Shemitah year, the year that we're ending. So it's the every seven year sabbatical year for focusing on release of land and um, debts. And, but it was also about a lot of like laying low and, and just getting our strength back. So 
I'm ex I'm looking forward to whatever is next. I think it's like it's really I agree it's a time for building and positivity and certainly reflection on the past but um really diving back into life almost with a renewed fervor but maybe not with the same frenzied pace. There's been a lot of reflection I think that's gone on and many many things that have come out of uh reflection and you know, having to take this extraordinary pause that we all had to deal with, and we're all still healing from it. It's not a, it's not that we're over it. You know, I don't think we even will realize for generations to come what this did to people's, you know, uh, souls and psyches. Um, but I am, I'm, I'm feeling very positive for figuring out what's our responsibility and our connection to each other and to the world in this new time. Me too. Any, any one or two quick things that you're looking forward to in the year? In 10 seconds. In 10 seconds. Well, I will say that my son is graduating high school this year, so I'm facing excitement and trepidation. Uh, and um, Well, may it be really a year of success. new possibility and excitement and blessing for you and your family and your community, Ricky. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you so much, Justin, and to yours. Minutemen football lives here. Olsen lops it. Josiah Johnson, end zone, touchdown, Massachusetts. Merriweather, daylight, end zone, touchdown, Ellis Merriweather from eight yards out. Follow the action all season long on your home for Minutemen football. The UMass Sports Network from Learfield. Touchdown, Massachusetts. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. 